to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. I'm so glad that you joined me this week. And my conversation today is with Dr. Susan Wally. And this really piqued my interest. And it is so relevant to the work that we do, but it really made an impact on kind of how I thought about how bad smoking and nicotine are for kids and of course adults, but that there are things that we can do. So Dr. Susan Chu Wally is the chief of the Division of Hospital Medicine at Children's National Hospital and professor of pediatrics at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Dr. Wally is a national expert for the prevention and treatment of youth tobacco use and tobacco smoke exposure and is a certified tobacco treatment specialist. She completed her pediatric residency at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and a Master's of Healthcare Management from Harvard School of Public Health. Her research and advocacy interests include development and implementation of clinical and school-based interventions to decrease adolescent and parental tobacco use in clinical and school settings. She serves as the immediate past chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on nicotine and tobacco prevention and treatment and co-authored the AAP policy statements on tobacco control and e-cigarettes and vaping devices. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wally to this really interesting conversation. Hey, Susan, how are you? Hi, Leah. I'm great. I am so happy to have you. And I'm really interested in our topic today because I think as pediatricians, we see a lot of vaping and nicotine use. And I know you have some information hot off the press, so I'm excited to to dive in. So, But before we start, maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about how you got into pediatrics and how you got into this specific area. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, I think I was born to work with kids. I didn't necessarily know I was going to go into pediatrics um, as a child, uh, but, you know, really liked medicine. And I think like many of um, you and probably a lot of people who are listening, when you got on the pediatrics rotation as a medical student, you were just like, this is where I belong. Um, and I am a pediatric hospitalist at Children's National Hospital in DC. And during my career, early in my career, I recognized, like many of us um, know, that respiratory issues are the number one cause of hospitalizations. And um, while I had not, you know, I knew tobacco was bad, of course, uh, you know, as a resident and a medical student, I didn't necessarily recognize the full clinical impact of secondhand smoke. And so, you know, patient after patient, parents, um, you know, were smokers. And of course, they were, you know, wonderful parents, well-meaning parents. They just did not recognize the impact they were having. And so that really inspired me to get into the work, particularly as 
there's so much evidence out there to know how to help a tobacco user, somebody who's nicotine addicted um, as an adult to stop using tobacco. Yeah. So we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say, there's nothing we can do about it. That's right. I, like everyone else know that, you know, it can be challenging when you're using your best motivational interviewing and it's a parent who is just not that open to it at that conversation. And, you know, we tend to think of those conversations and not all of the ones where, you know, we are really impacting that parent thinking about quitting, you know, going that next step. Yeah, it's funny. I ran into somebody in the in Target the other day and she said, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, at one point when I first met you, you asked me a question, are you okay? And I was really defensive, but she said, I remembered it after that. And this is now 20 some years later, you know, so our words really do impact our patients. So I think there's a lot of power. Well, let's just start with an overview of the tobacco and nicotine data and who's using, when are they starting? What are they using? What do we know about that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, and as you said, there's some information hot off the press from the MMWR that came out um, November 11th. And basically, you know, I don't think this is going to be shocking to you, but this is still a youth epidemic of, of use. And so in 2022, the National Youth Tobacco Survey found that 25% of middle and high school students had ever used a form of tobacco. And then when we look at current use, which um, the National Youth Tobacco Survey, which I'll just say NYTS, looked at current use, which is like if you've used one or more times in the past month, that was 11.3%. So basically, you know, when you look at it and break it down a little bit more, it's, it's really worrisome. And this is actually the first time the MMWR has really done as deep of a dive into the different health inequities. And I know that we're all, you know, thinking about it and you know, myself, I was really shocked and saddened. And I know, you know, we all as pediatricians, you know, really, we live this every day. But, um, you know, just to kind of be more specific, when we're looking at high school students, one in six high school students are current users of a tobacco product, and one in 22 middle school students are current users. And I know that it's still, there's a lot of confusion out there about what exactly is a tobacco product. And this is not by accident. The tobacco companies try to make this confusing. But basically, we define really from the a regulatory perspective, from the Food and Drug Administration, what we're talking about is e-cigarettes. We're talking about these oral nicotine pouches, cigarettes, cigar, heated tobacco products like Icos. And so when we just break it down into looking at e-cigarettes and vape, you know, that's Puff Bar, Jewel, you know, all of the Mojo, all of the different e-cigarettes and vape that kids are using nowadays. So it's a, it's a big, big, you know, number of kids that are using and then also different kinds of tobacco products. I just imagine this dark room with a bunch of adults, nefarious adults sitting around in the dark talking about, okay, how do we hook a whole bunch of kids? I mean, it just, who sits around and thinks this stuff up? It just... 
you know, and praise on kids. It's just not right. Exactly. And, you know, I mentioned the FDA and they do have regulatory authority over e-cigarettes. And, um, you know, we're the AAP is among, you know, child health advocates that have actually sued the FDA for them to take authority and and really perform these pre-market authorizations or or denials, you know, as they go through millions of applications for e-cigarettes. And I want to let people know that, you know, there's been some recent really positive action in terms of protecting children. At the end of October, uh, the first menthol-flavored e-cigarette um, had a marketing denial, and that's from a e-cigarette company called Logic. And then in November, mid-November, the FDA sent warning letters to 15 different firms that were selling products, e-cigarette products that look like toys, food, cartoon characters. And I mean, I know we're on a podcast, but if you just Google FDA warning letters, I was horrified. I mean, me who has seen quite a lot in terms of e-cigarettes, I mean, it's e-cigarettes that look like, you know, those orange dreamsicles, there's Bart Simpson characters, banana. I mean, it's, it is horrifying. And, you know, I always, you know, say to people like those type of products, they're not going after a middle-aged woman like myself. They're going after our kids. Yeah. Ah, it just, you know, shame on them. You know, it's like the knowingly doing something that's harmful to kids. Uh, Well, let me ask you, is the, the marketing and the use different across different populations? And I mean, is industry like focusing on or preying on specific groups? That's such a good question. I mean, we have known for decades that Black Americans are much more likely to smoke menthol cigarettes. And clearly, we know that there is no, you know, genetic predisposition for Black Americans to be smoking menthol cigarettes. What that was is an intentional, deliberate uh, marketing campaign. And, you know, some of your listeners probably remember, you know, like the, uh, you know, the cool mint and, you know, they'd have uh, black actors, you know, really promoting those products. And then when we go to neighborhoods that are historically, um, you know, black or African-American, there would be advertisements specific to menthol. And, you know, the really horrifying thing about that is that menthol is really an anesthetic. So it is like, you know, lidocaine. So it helps kind of the, you know, the poison go down easier is what oftentimes we will say um, to bring the message home. And so, you know, the theory is that although Black Americans actually smoke less cigarettes than, you know, maybe their white counterparts who are also smokers, they have a higher rate of tobacco related death and disease. Now, some of that we think may be due to, you know, healthcare disparities and racism. Um, but some of that we think is also just related to that they are smoking mentholated cigarettes and taking those deeper drags because of the, the menthol effect, the anesthetic effect. So that's definitely mm-hmm. the case. Um, we know that the flavors um, attract kids, uh, attract youth. And that's why flavors were taken out of 
um, conventional cigarettes, uh, regular cigarettes in 2009 with the Family and Smoking Act. Unfortunately, with e-cigarettes, there are thousands, I think 15,000 at the latest count of flavors that at this point still are not fully regulated. So you'll have, you know, Sour Patch Kids, e-cigarette flavors, Death by Chocolate, you know, lots of candy, fruit flavors, and then menthol. You know, I think I mentioned that the good news is that the FDA did issue a market denial on Logic, um, which is uh, a mentholated, a menthol flavored e-cigarette. So at least that's happening. The first one. Somehow... I somehow thought that they had kind of prohibited flavorings for other vape products, but that's not the case. They're still out there. Unfortunately, what is part of what is regulated and what is the compliance issue is is very different. So anyone who goes to just a gas station and, you know, look, you know, what we call the power wall because tobacco companies pay a lot of money to have their tobacco products behind the cashier. So basically you have to see and, and basically interact with the products or, you know, you're, they're right in front of you. There's a lot of flavored e-cigarettes, unfortunately. And part of that is huh. a loophole that the FDA did issue a, uh, basically they said that you can't have flavored pod-based e-cigarettes like Juul, or if you're talking about, um, of course, you know, cigarettes, um, but those um, same regulations have not gone into, well, it's a little bit tricky, Leah, because they've gone into effect theoretically, but each state mobilizes uh, in terms of compliance in a different way. So there's still plenty of these disposable e-cigarettes that are very easily obtained by um, by youth. And unfortunately, a lot of um, what where they're also getting it, I mean, other than friends and convenience stores is online. Yeah, you know, I remember asking kids who were vaping, like, tell me what you like about it. And they said, oh, I like the orange flavored and, you know, but this one doesn't have any nicotine, but... I since found out after doing some reading that oftentimes there is can be a little teeny bit of nicotine. And because the teen brain is so sensitive to nicotine, that that can be kind of a uh, an introduction into addiction. Is that true? Um, you know, I don't know that there's like a certain level, um, but we do definitely know that the teen brain is much more, you know, we we all know that the teen brain is you know, immature and that maturity takes till, you know, 25 years of age and that nicotine has a disproportionate effect on the teen brain. So we do know through animal studies that nicotine um, exposure, you know, can cause irreversible brain cell damage and long-term behavior changes. Mm. So, you know, and we do think of um, nicotine as, a gate, you know, a gateway drug, you know, the probably the strongest evidence is related to like cocaine. But in terms of just knowing that, you know, what I say is like, nobody starts with heroin in general, you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna, you know, usually, you know, use nicotine, uh, whether it's an e-cigarette or a cigarette, and then, 
oftentimes, you know, you'll go to marijuana and then so on. So we really want to, you know, kind of break that cycle. I think, uh, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of times people will be like, oh, kids are going to experiment, you know, it's, it's not okay, but, but it kind of is, you know, now we know that we want kids from the very beginning to say that they will not use nicotine or, you know, nicotine and tobacco products, because we want to break that, you know, gateway cycle. Well, and I know in talking to some other folks that are working in the substance use world that, you know, it's more often the case than not that there's more than one substance of use. So a smoker or a vapor is often using alcohol or marijuana, and that it's unusual for it to be, you know, all just alcohol use. Um, So I thought that was interesting. And, you know, we think, oh, you know, vaping occasionally, not that big a deal, like, oh, I'm so glad they're not doing something more serious. But, you know, somehow this idea that it can draw you in, literally breathing it in into something that is more difficult. And yeah, so, so the problem is worse. Yeah. And I think, you know, that is such a great point, Leah, that, you know, we know, I mean, e-cigarettes are still a relatively new tobacco product, but we know that there are significant and deadly health harms of vaping itself. And that was really brought to a lot of um, youth attention and and national attention uh, with the Evoli outbreak, e-cigarette or vaping associated lung injury. Uh, that killed dozens of people, and it was related with e-cigarette use. So I think it is, you know, really important to highlight that, you know, as you said, vaping is not safe. No tobacco product is safe, and it can cause, you know, both those short-term, you know, those are youth and um, and largely young adults that were getting sick and being hospitalized and even dying, as well as longer-term um, impacts, which include, you know, lung injury. And the data is still developing because, again, it's, you know, it's been around for, you know, about 10 years, but we certainly don't want this whole generation. There's 3 million kids using or youth that are using e-cigarettes that in 30 years, we find out that they, you know, are getting lung cancer and getting, you know, different cancers. Cigarette use leads to, you know, 13 different types of cancers and kills, you know, still is the number one cause of preventable death and disease. Wow. Well, and you mentioned something earlier, and I don't know if it was just in a lab models about effects on, I think you said irreversible brain damage and some behavioral outcomes. Is that something that's been found in humans? So, um, I mean, definitely it is, there is concerns and, um, findings, although of course, at this point, we can't say it's causative with neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD. Of course, uh, you know, we hope that we are not going to have to do, you know, autopsies on people's brains that are vapors, uh, that vape uh, e-cigarettes. So I think that, you know, certainly the evidence is emerging and it is clearly something that uh, we hope that there's going to be more funding for research efforts to really find out, you know, with millions of youth using, we need to have this information, not only what the harms are, 
but more importantly, you know, what the most effective treatments are. Yeah. And you mentioned so lung injury. And I know, of course, nicotine has impact on cardiovascular. Are they seeing that with e-cigarettes and vaping as well? I mean, is there effect on blood pressure or, you know, the arterial stuff? I mean, are they seeing those changes too? Yes. So nicotine in itself, you know, it is a stimulant. And so it does have effects on the cardiovascular system and the endothelium, uh, which is really, you know, one of the number one causes of death and disease from cigarette use. So unfortunately, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same health effects, um, which is, you know, not that surprising. You know, the factors that are not as well known is that e-cigarettes in general, they're the components that are advertised are um, humectants, which are propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin, uh, flavorings. And, you know, I already mentioned there's like 15,000 flavors and then the nicotine. And so while nicotine is a drug that has been around, you know, certainly in the number of youth that are using in the way that they're using, that's a totally new thing. And then when we think about propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin, you know, people will say like, oh, it's safe. Don't worry about it. Those both of those products are very commonly found in things like cosmetics or cookies, candy. And they're so they're called they have a generally recognized as safe standard, but that's only for ingestion. We don't know what is sort of the long term effect of inhalation, particularly at the rate that some youth are using. And then ingredient wise for the flavors. Also, we're really concerned, you know, certain flavors like the popcorn flavors, you know, people, you know, have heard that it's been associated with bronchiolitis obliterans, Hmm. which is like popcorn long is what a lot of people will call it. Um, Cinnamon has been associated with immune effects. Um, And so there's just a lot of concerning information that we know. And it's there's a lot of data that's emerging. Wow. So, and what about, you mentioned at the very beginning, what about secondhand, thirdhand in utero? I mean, are there, you know, maybe the kid's not using, but a parent is, um, maybe a parent's vaping. um, And so it's not necessarily as much inhalation, but can it get on the carpet where a baby's crawling? Are there things like that? Yeah. I mean, and that is what certainly we worry about as well, that, you know, both with the millions of youth that are using e-cigarettes directly, but then also, you know, the second and third hand aerosol, you know, the truth of the matter is that while there has certainly been some emerging data about the harms, you know, it took us decades to even know that secondhand smoke from cigarettes was bad for us. And so we, you know, at the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, section on nicotine and tobacco prevention and treatment, you know, that's a really important talking point for us. And, you know, particularly in the clinical setting to let parents and caretakers know, well, number one, we want them to be good role models. And that means not using tobacco products but also that it's not safe to be using those products, whatever, you know, the companies will say around their kids. The best thing is quitting. 
And definitely there's a lot of resources there for that. And we do not want to expose any non-user to the second and third hand. And particularly, as you said, in utero. Wow. I was thinking back because I'm old enough to remember when you could smoke on airplanes and they decided to have a non-smoking section and a smoking section. So the non-smoking section would be the first, I don't know, actually the smoking section would be the first 12 rows and then the back would be non-smoking. Well, hello. (laughs) Yeah, like that made sense. But I also remember way back when I was a resident, you could, we had a smoking lounge for in the surgery, you know, there was a smoking and a non-smoking lounge. And unfortunately, I remember smoking as a resident in a break room. And uh, I fortunately had a best friend that told me that I look stupid smoking. And so I quit. I couldn't stand the smell of it. But I do remember um, mentholated thinking, oh, this is and you know, you get kind of a buzz from it. And so, I mean, fortunately, that was not something that I continued to use. But, you know, I remember use in a hospital, I mean, which just sounds so bizarre. Um, but I, I think we've forgotten about some of those situations and how much better it is, or even restaurants where you could, again, sit in the non-smoking mm-hmm. section or a hotel where there'd been a smoker. I mean, you know, it just lingers. I, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that we have come a long way and we have a lot further to go. So depending on where you live in the country, there may or may not be any local or state laws protecting, you know, you as a citizen to have clean air. And so while we've, you know, really made great strides in having, you know, non-smoker protections, there's, you know, for for the audience, uh, you know, there's a lot of advocacy to be had. And many of the um, bans, um, the smoking bans, um, were prior to vaping. And so what we're seeing is, um, you know, challenges to, you know, a tobacco-free um, ban, you know, like let's say a restaurant has a, you know, has a non-smoking rule. And, you know, somebody comes in and they're vaping, uh, you know, this happened uh, at our hospital. They're like, oh, well, you, you know, your policy doesn't say I can't vape. So people should look at, you know, their own local area, their own, you know, clinic or um, hospital and, and make sure that the policies are as strong as they need to be, that it's all tobacco products that are included. Well, and and let's talk about messaging because, you know, the messaging is not only to our kids, but also to parents. How do we do it in a way that's non-judgmental? But I'm just thinking, you, you know, I had this conversation with um, someone about marijuana use. Like, I just feel like people don't know what they don't know. So it's incumbent upon us to say, hey, I have this information and not giving you this information would be bad medicine. And it's kind of my duty to inform, but talk a little bit about messaging. What works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this, you know, this current era of misinformation does make it really tough. And, you know, myself as a, you know, pediatric hospitalist, you know, sometimes it seems um, overwhelming to kind of go through, you know, your recommendations in a way that is not misperceived that you're being judgmental. You know, 
at the AAP, you know, we talk a lot about motivational interviewing. And of course, you know, asking, you know, central to that, I think, is asking permission uh, to share this information. And, um, and exactly like you said, you know, coming at it as, you know, I'm your child's doctor and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you about, you know, the right medicine. Um, so I'm not doing my job if I'm not telling you that, you know, your smoking can have an effect on your child and I want to help you quit. So that is, gen- that is, I think, what has been shown to be effective using motivational interviewing and then also being direct and, you know, not saying things that are not, I mean, of course, not accurate, but it, it, it doesn't help the child for the parent not to come away and realize that their smoking or tobacco use, you know, is a factor. And, you know, we want to pair that with here is what we can do to help you. And what about messaging for kids? How do we phrase it? You know, I'm a 13 year old say, and I'm in for a well visit. What what is the most effective messaging as pediatrician, pediatric clinician that I can, what are the words? What are the words that I would say that are most likely to keep a teen from vaping or smoking? Right. I mean, I think um, education, particularly around vaping is, is tough because they're getting, you know, the tobacco companies are spending millions and millions of dollars um, reaching out to our teens. And it's not Unfortunately, or fortunately, it's not in TV commercials anymore. It's generally social media or it's point of sale, which means like you go into that gas station and even though you may not see it, there's tobacco advertisements and there's the way that they, uh, you know, we mentioned the power wall where, you know, you walk up to the cashier and you're like, oh, wow, look at all those tobacco products. So that's where they're spending all that money. And so when you look at like societally, um, uh, those pressures to normalize tobacco use, it's hard in one quick conversation to really be able to undo that. Um, But your voice really matters. And what we found effective with youth is particularly talking about tobacco companies and the deceptive, um, manipulative ways that tobacco companies are, you know, trying to reach out to teens. That has been found to be really effective. And uh, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, along with AAP and other organizations, really have, I think, utilized that well in terms of TV advertisements and, um, and other things. Because Telling a 13-year-old that you might get lung cancer when you're 60, not effective. Um, So short-term effects like, you know, we know that other teens who are using e-cigarettes are going to be more likely to, you know, have coughing and, you know, difficulty breathing. And, you know, if that child has asthma, you know, that their asthma is going to be worse short-term. And then, you know, also talk about deceptive tactics by the tobacco companies. I've, I've used that strategy sometimes like, you know, it's incredible what these companies are doing to try and fool yeah. you. You know, they want you to start this. This is to their benefit, not exactly. yours. And I do think sometimes that might sort of 
raise the eyebrows. So let's talk a little bit about what you do if someone is smoking or says, yes, I want to quit, or they're beginning to be in that sort of pre-contemplation, contemplation phase. Are there you know, what are the tools out there to help kids? Let's start with like non-medicinal treatments. What What's out there? Like, are there apps? What What other information should I be armed yeah, with? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about teens, well, yeah, specifically teens and vaping. So the AAP has a great sort of framework called ACT, which is ask. So of course we need to identify, you know, youth who are using the C is counsel. And then the T is treat. So we have lots and lots, decades of experience about what really works um, with adults who are tobacco users. And that is using counseling, And first-line pharmacotherapy, which means uh, like nicotine replacement, you know, the gum, the patch, the lozenge, or like this, and again, this is for adult tobacco users, um, or things like Wellbutrin and Chantix. We don't have that same level of evidence in teenagers, and definitely not for vaping. However, we do know that in pediatrics, oftentimes we don't have, you know, as much data as we would like. And there's no reason that a 17-year-old versus an 18-year-old, because the FDA approves um, nicotine replacement therapy and, you know, for 18 and up. So, you know, this is, I just want your listeners to know, like, this is really expert opinion um, from the AAP and many, many tobacco experts and substance use experts and adolescent experts. But what, um, you know, we recommend is that motivational interviewing, that counseling, exactly like you just said, thinking about short term, you know, these are the effects that vaping is going to have. And then also, you know, like, hey, the tobacco companies are making all this money off you, you know, you don't want to be like a pawn of, you know, a big tobacco, and then treatment. So if a teen is moderately to severely addicted, the AAP does recommend that you can consider nicotine replacement therapy. So, you know, then the question is, what's moderately to severely addictive? So there is something called the Honk Hooked on Nicotine Checklist, H-O-N-K, uh, oh, sorry, H-O-N-C, that um, you can use to kind of help you with that. You know, so it's questions like, do you get up in the middle of the night to vape because, you know, you have a craving? Or, you know, is vaping the first thing you do in the morning when you wake up? And, you know, really any of those positives, there's 10 questions total, makes you concerned that that person is moderately to severely addicted and where you can talk with um, that teen about using nicotine replacement therapy. The unfortunate thing is that, you know, these e-cigarette products have really, really high levels of nicotine. So, you know, the greatest example is um, Juul. You know, one jewel pod has about 43 milligrams of nicotine and, you know, one carton or sorry, one pack of cigarettes, which is 20 cigarettes has about, you know, what you absorb is going to be about 20 milligrams of nicotine. So we're talking like huge amount of nicotine, especially because we had anecdotal stories of, you know, teens using two or three pods a day. So I know, I know I say that because when we think about treatment, 
a lot of times the treatment failures are related to just not giving enough nicotine replacement. So if you have mm. a teen who's, you know, vaping two or three pods a day, you know, let's say mm. that's 80 to 120 milligrams that, you know, that they're exposed to. And then you try to just say like, hey, you know, use a nicotine gum that's two milligrams every now and then, you know, they're still going to have those physical, you know, withdrawal symptoms. So just thinking about, say we have an 18 year old so that we can talk about what's FDA approved. What What's the recommendation? I've heard that using like a patch plus oral can be more effective. Is that yes, right? Absolutely. Um, the recommendations are that you use two forms of nicotine replacement. Um, one would be the longer acting, which is a patch, and it comes in seven, 14, and 21 milligrams. So anyone who is like the way that the FDA recommendations are is if you use 10 cigarettes, which is half a pack a day or more, then you would automatically go to the highest um, dosage form, which is a 21 milligrams. And you use that, you know, for 24 hours and then you change it in almost all uh, with the Affordable Care Act basically made that if you have insurance, your health uh, care um, insurance company should cover these first line uh, pharmacotherapy for tobacco cessation. Because if you buy it over the counter, it actually is pretty expensive. It's cheaper than buying cigarettes, of course. Um, but for many of our, you know, teens, of course, who are very price sensitive, um, it can be, you know, it can be a, a big barrier to them using. What about Medicaid? Does it cover? Medicaid does. Oftentimes it does require a prior authorization, if particularly if we're talking about using it off-label. So okay. you use the long-acting patch, and then you have either the nicotine gum or the nicotine lozenge, which both come in two milligrams and four milligrams, you know, if you compare it to asthma, like your rescue. So if somebody has a craving, um, you want that person to really try to hold off as long as possible and then use either the gum or the lozenge to help that physical addiction. The important thing to tell your patients is that with the gum, the nicotine is absorbed um, mucosally. So you have to chew, 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 and then you feel a tingling and then you park it um, because that's how the nicotine gets um, absorbed. Oftentimes um, people will, if they don't know, they'll just chew it. They'll swallow all the nicotine and it won't be effective, number one. And then it also gives them a stomach ache. So very mm, often people okay. are like, oh, I tried that gum and it did nothing. Um, so it's that was ah, good to know. I mean. Oh, this is this is why I do this podcast because there's so many things that are helpful in practice, but we don't know all the details. Yeah. What about like phone numbers? I know there's I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but uh, phone yeah. numbers for support or apps. Any other any other resources for people trying? Yeah, to Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so the one that is most relevant, you know, across the nation is one eight hundred quit now. And it is available, you know, all 50 states and districts, Guam, and most of the 1-800-QUIT-NOW uh, programs, because it's each state actually has their own program, although it's a national number, will see and, and treat 
um, or council at least, teens down to 13. So you would have to know for your individual state or in the state that you know your patient is in. And then in terms of specific specifically for vaping, there is the this is quitting app. Um, or not app, sorry, it's a text to quit program, which is you text ditch vape to 88709. So ditch vape to 8809. Actually, I did that myself just to, you know, kind of make sure that I knew what it was all about. And what it does is it sends you, you know, specific, you know, for age and and gender specific motivational texts. And that is by the, the Truth Initiative. There's data that they have that it is effective in young adults. They're currently doing um, a study in lesson 18, which I'm really, really excited about just because we all want to be evidence-based. And at this you know, early point, we don't have as much evidence as we need. It sort of sounds like it wouldn't be super dangerous to have people saying this is helpful to, but I, I hear what you're saying. You know, as a professional to recommend evidence based, but it might be better than not. Right, right. <laughs> Sharing right. the information. Um, are there apps? Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I do not have specific apps that I recommend. Um, there, you know, when you sort of look at the, the Apple store, there's a bunch of different ones. Um, and so there's not one specifically that I um, have okay. used. Okay. What about um, just quickly mentioning Wellbutrin and Chantix? Again, I know those haven't been approved for use in kids under 18, but is there some effectiveness to those? Yeah. I mean, they're quite effective in adult populations for tobacco cessation. And, you know, I think obviously, you know, Wellbutrin, there's a a lot of experience that providers um, in the pediatric population among adolescent and psychiatric. So, you know, it's like any other medicine in pediatrics. If you have a relationship with the patient and you're comfortable and familiar with the medicine, you know, then certainly it has its place in your toolbox of different things. You know, I certainly as a pediatric hospitalist, you know, I'll talk to my patients if if it's a teen who's interested in quitting, I will write them a prescription because that's how it gets paid for, uh, for nicotine replacement therapy. Of course, I always encourage them to talk to their parents. To be honest, most of the most of their parents do know and, you know, want them, you know, want their child to quit. So for me as a hospitalist, um, you know, I am not in the position to follow them up. So Wellbutrin and Enchantix aren't traditionally something I've used, but I know other pediatricians, particularly adolescent doctors who, you know, if it's a patient who otherwise also, you know, they're looking to, you know, treat anxiety or depression, you know, might use Wellbutrin for that added effect as well. Yeah. And, and I'm just, will note here that these are off-label recommendations exactly. And we're not endorsing these products. I mean, this isn't a CME activity, so that there's not the commercialization, but since we're using trade names and off-label, just we'll mention that. So what about billing and coding for interventions? I mean, this stuff takes time. Is there a way that we can get paid yeah. for that? So um, the AAP has a lot of great resources. What I think 
was traditionally challenging is, you know, if you have a child who is not the tobacco user and how you bill and code for that. If the patient is a tobacco user, then that makes it sadly, a little bit easier in terms of billing and coding and the counseling that you do and the treatment. Okay. Well, there is the billing and coding book that will come out, the AAP uh, manual that'll be coming out, I think in January, it may already be out for 2023. And there is a whole section in there on substance use counseling, including nicotine. I did want to mention too, as a screening tool, the craft um, the 2.1, because it does have the nicotine questions and it's easy to use. And it is recommended that we be screening all of our kids for, uh, you know, substance use starting early, like at least at 12 and and maybe younger. Sometimes I remember asking a couple of kids and one had started when he was nine. He was picking up his parents' cigarettes and smoking those. And of course, you know, no parent wants their nine-year-old to be smoking. But, you know, I think they were also looking at a child that had lots of behavior issues. And to them, that was like the least of their concerns. And, and yet there's so many difficult outcomes. Well, this has all been just terrific information, and I'll make sure I put the links in the show notes to the MMWR report, uh, the AAP policy information. There will be a new policy clinical report, technical report, hopefully coming out sometime in early 2023, um, but certainly this year uh, coming up that will have a lot of really good information. And then I'll put the phone numbers in there as well. So any final pearls for us, Susan? Uh, No, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And it's made me, you know, really, I guess, get even more passionate about, you know, the fact that this is a problem that, you know, we have some answers. And I know, you know, as pediatricians, you know, if you are able to keep your patient from using tobacco and be a non-user until 21 years of age, the chance of them picking it up at that point is very, very low. Uh, yeah. Wow. That, say, that, say that again. If you can keep your patient- From using tobacco and being a non-user until 21 years of age, you know, so that's fully in the pediatric range that it is very, very unlikely them to become a tobacco user after that. And some of that is related to, you know, the teenage brain and the, you know, that they're more likely to become addicted. And it's also related to just the societal, you know, kind of norms and pressure. Um, So that always kind of keeps me motivated. Yeah, yeah. Well, my last question I always give all my guests is if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were a resident, what would it be? Oh, residency and just being a young person nowadays is really, really tough. I think I would probably say that I guess there's the old adage that you never regret things that you you did. It's more the things that you didn't do. And so it would be about that, like doing or taking more opportunity to do advocacy work or do other work that, you know, in the day to day of being a resident, of course, when we were residents, you know, there were no work hour restrictions. And um, and so it was. Nope. Yes. And so it was a little bit of a different lifestyle, but that definitely would be would be one of the things I would tell my younger self. So, so advocacy. Honestly, that's how I got 
show involved in the AAP is once I got a taste of advocacy, I mean, it just, it just sort of ignites this enthusiasm and passion, like our conversation today, like, oh, I can do things, I can make a difference. And it just is so invigorating and uplifting. And and as I've said on many podcasts, that this fills your yes. cup, you know. Um, so, well, listen, thank you for the work you're doing. And I'll look forward to when your um, documents come out through AAP, because I think this is going to be really, really helpful for physicians out there, whether you're primary care, ED, hospitalists, surgeons. I mean, it, it kind of touches or subspecialists. I mean, it kind of touches on all of our realms. And we all have that opportunity for that one comment, like, hmm, I'm a little worried about your smoking. I mean, just that comment might be enough for somebody to say, oh, maybe that is a problem. <laughs> so, and, and certainly for our parents. And I think, you know, right now as we're in the middle of the, uh, you know, the respiratory infection trifecta, mm -hmm. you know, those kids with RSV whose parents smoke are probably at significantly more risk. Absolutely. And I did want to mention before we get off, because I meant to talk about more of the health disparities in the MMWR, you know, some of them are really disturbing and shocking. So when we look at LGBT youth, there is a rate of 16% of current use compared to heterosexual. And this is all self-reported through the National Youth Tobacco Survey with 9.7% use. So 16% for LGBT and compared to about 10% for heterosexual um, youth. And then the two probably highest is that if a youth says that they have severe psychological distress, um, that they uh, have a rate of tobacco use at 18.3% compared to 7% if the youth says they have no psychological distress. And then actually the highest or the biggest delta is 27% of students that have a low academic achievement which they define as all mainly all Fs uh, versus 6.6% of students who are reporting all A's. So I don't necessarily think that all, you know, this is like, you know, shocking information. You know, we all are taking care of, you know, patients that are really struggling with anxiety and things with the, the pandemic, but this is data that, you know, really is pretty new in terms of, you know, seeing this wide of, of the disparities. Alaska, um, American Indians, Alaska Natives have the highest rate of use among different racial groups of 13.5%. Well, thank you for including that. I, again, I think it's important that we're sharing this with all kids, but in particular, you know, those kids who are maybe in more distress or in more adverse situations. So interesting food for thought, right? Well, listen, have a great rest of the day. And um, thank you again for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Leah. I think that this conversation is incredibly interesting and really impactful. So here's my takeaways. Number one, thank you to Dr. Wally for this incredibly timely and useful information. Number two, hot off the press, the November 2022 MMWR report finds that nicotine and tobacco use is increasing. And in 2022 of high school and middle school kids who were surveyed, 20% have ever used and 11% are current users. 
This is 3 million kids who are affected, one in six high school kids and one in 22 middle school kids. Number three, tobacco and nicotine find their way into a multitude of products, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, patches, oral products, pods, and flavorings have shown staggering increases in e-cigarette and vaping use in youth. Number four, it is not a fluke that products are flavored with names like cotton candy. This is intentional and deliberate. It's marketed to kids. Number five, marketing extends to specific populations. And for example, menthol products are often directed towards African-American individuals with very specific, again, deliberate and intentional advertisements. And African-Americans have the highest rates of tobacco-related deaths and disease for reasons that are not entirely clear. But it's not race-based. It's likely to be access to care, environmental factors, poverty. Number six, LGBTQ plus youth, kids with psychological distress, and those with low academic achievement are at higher risk of using. Native American and Native Alaskans have the highest rates of use. Number seven, teen brains are disproportionately affected by nicotine and tobacco, and animal models show that there may be irreversible damage. Number eight, vaping is associated with serious lung damage. It even has its own name, Evali and popcorn lung, and we know that nicotine damages the vascular endothelium, affecting cardiovascular disease. So that's yet another risk. And of course, there's all the cancers associated with tobacco and nicotine. Number nine, for e-products, there are also the additions of propylene glycol, glycerin, and the humectants in flavorings. And while some of these may be okay in a cookie, are they okay to be in your lungs? Number 10, nicotine and tobacco are gateway drugs for youth with substance use disorders. And remember that when there are substance use disorders, it's almost always more than one substance used. Number 11. So why does this all matter? This is huge. If you can keep your patient from using tobacco and to being a non-user to the age of 21, they are exceedingly unlikely to become a user. Stop right here and write this down. It's really, really important. Number 12. So how do we do this? First, assess if parents are users and do they understand the risks of secondhand and thirdhand smoke exposure. Use your best motivational interviewing to sway them to quit and support and congratulate their efforts. Stress that they are the role models for their children and parents do not want their kids to become users. Number 13, the AAP has many resources to help with tobacco and nicotine cessation including ACT, ACT, Intervention, the Ask, Counsel, and Treat, and Ask and Talk About Risks. Immediate risks matter most. Use a screening tool like the CRAFT 2.1N as a substance use disorder screening tool, and I'll put that link in the show notes. Number 14, let kids know about the manipulation by industry. This is a powerful message and perhaps underused and may be way more meaningful than telling a kid they may have lung cancer at 60. Number 15, although treatments like 
nicotine replacement therapy. While Butrin and Chantix have been used and approved for adults, they can be used off-label for youth. Number 16. Treat those with moderate to severe use, and you can use the honk hooked on nicotine checklist for youth, which is 10 questions, to help determine the severity. This is also in the show notes. Number 17. When using nicotine replacement therapy, use both the long-acting patch at an adequate dose plus oral gum or lozenge, and use the gum correctly. They need to chew it and then hold it in the cheek so that it has that good mucosal absorption and that the nicotine is not just swallowed. Number 18. While Butrin and Chantix may be considered depending on the age of the patient, the clinician comfort, and the severity of use. Number 19. Use 1-800-QUIT-NOW and this is quitting texting ditch vape to 88709. This is also in the show notes. Number 20. There are specific codes for tobacco and nicotine cessation counseling. Again, check out the show notes for these links. And the AAP just released the 2023 coding book, and you can find that at the shop AAP store. Number 21. Remember that your voice makes an enormous difference to parents and to kids. They listen to what we say, even if we don't think so. Use motivational interviewing. Ask permission, be non-judgmental, and offer support and strategies to quit and stay with them in their efforts. And finally, number 22, help a kid be a never user. Thank you so much for your time today, and I really appreciate everything you do. Take good care, and I look forward to you joining me next week when we start a series on ADHD. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.